Thank you, everyone. Thanks for coming. Uh, it's really nice to see you on this beautiful Copenhagen day. And thank you, Lulama, for being with me today for this um, interesting artist talk. I'm really looking forward to being in conversation with you. So I don't know if you've seen Lulama's work at uh, 18 Gallery. She has a duo exhibition with a very important Danish artist. I think she's recently being rediscovered, uh, Sonia Fellow of Mankoba. To be honest with you, I'm so delighted that the fair paired us because I was. this is one of my highlights of being in Copenhagen this year to discover your work. Also in the context of like your you know, like relationship with Sonia. So first of all, okay, you're already seeing some images from the install. Maybe we could start with um, a kind of an introduction question. How did this exhibition come about? Um, hello. <laughs> Uh, the exhibition, I think, was a long time coming. It was a conversation that I started two years ago through a body of work where I gave ode to a South African artist, Ernest Mangoba, who is Sonia's husband. So in that conversation, I think a lot of conversations were being held, and I met Mikkel and Astrid from 18 and V1, and we kind of started the conversation on, like, what do you think? And I think from that conversation, there was great alignment in trying to find how we can work together. And also, it wasn't um, intense. It was just, okay, we're going to get it done. This sounds good. Let's go. I think over time, I think the responsibility was then left on me to try see how to bring it together from that place. So it was quite, quite aligning as well. And um, you decided to also color the walls. And this is a particular brown. It's quite dark. Mm -hmm. And you were, I think, saying that it also is like a similar color to the soil and the dirt mm -hmm. uh, from where you come from. Can you please expand on that? Yes, yeah, sure. So sand is my medium of choice as a way of guiding me through my practice. I use sand to kind of make my paintings tactile. And I think bringing sand as a way of um, allowing it to breathe on the canvas is, is that. So the color, <laughs> the wall color uh, was also quite intuitive when I chose it. I had asked uh, my studio manager, because my studio is also very brown, so I have colors on different side of my studio to kind of put works to see what goes with what. So during the preparation of the show, I had my studio brown. And that's how I wanted it to embody a cave. I wanted it to embody a vernacular house. And I also wanted to embody home. And home is sand. Home is brown. Home is about, I mean, texture. I think if you leave the city, of course, you are met with mountains and grass and a lot of sand. So when I work with it, I always try to take a little bit with me. That's very beautiful. And I think it really kind of like uh, pronounces the materiality of both works, the color. Although it's a quite a bold choice, I would say. You know, like when you first come in, the darkness of the room really enwraps That's you. That's so interesting. I really didn't think it was a bold choice. For me, it felt yeah. normal. It's like, oh, yep, yeah. brown. <laughs> and so the response has been so interesting to find that it was a little bit of a 
not a shock, but interesting to yeah, see. I think, you know, over the last years, we've become more accustomed to seeing different dark colors like burgundies mm -hmm. or I think of like national portrait galleries now renovated and they have this lime green soft uh, mm -hmm. wall colors and you know in the in the before it was almost like a taboo mm -hmm. not to have gallery walls white mm -hmm. but I felt when I came into the exhibition it almost was this kind of like maybe perhaps there's also this relationship this visceral relationship of our bodies to earth mm -hmm. like you know we love terracotta we love copper yes. these kind of like the tones of brown and I felt like this was almost like a, maybe what you're saying about home that, that there was this warmth almost this kind of like the Hug. room yeah, yeah exactly the room like embraced you mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I, I definitely felt that way as well. I think um, color has a way of dictating emotion. And I use color to dictate the kind of emotion I want my paintings to make people feel. Because everything that I do is almost led to how to identify the study of color. So I mix my own pigments and I try to get a color that is specifically in tune with the figure and the emotion of, of the paintings. So um, is there kind of like a color theory that you studied or how does this like a kind of visceral relationship to color uh, mm -hmm. started for you? The relationship I've had with color is quite, I'd say, cultural. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in my community, I'm a Kosa woman from South Africa and Kosa people are the, one of the first people... Um, I'd say after colonization that embodied texture and cloth from the Germans and the Arabs. So when, when, the, when the trade of cloth came into Southern Africa, they were the first people to kind of use clay and pigments to kind of weigh on their bodies. So the colors that they chose were specifically from the earth, but they were bright blues and like bright burgundy colors and orange, deep oranges. So they paired them quite differently in our traditional regalia. So I think the first kind of study I made was of that color. So I tried to get those colors specifically with paint first and then with pigments later. So that relationship has started building up and I've started introducing different ways of matching my regalia with the paintings. So history then suggests that if you look back into the 1800s, you'd find the exact same color in the way that I would mix them on canvas. So that mustard, I think the mustard in that one corner, it's like a deep orange, but can be translated as a mustard as well. Creating color for me is very important because I can trace it back to a certain place. There's a book, um, an Asian Japanese book about the dictionary of color. And I hope one day I can create my own little dictionary of colors that are folkloric. That is very beautiful. I'd love to read that <laughs> one and have that book. Yeah. Um, but I want to also ask you about like the figures and mm -hmm. the lines that you use. They're very clean mm -hmm. in a way. And I feel they're um, kind of like, um, and the figures are quite interesting in a way that they're on the same reality plane with, you know, like the surrounding of those figures. Let's say the objects, the landscape, like I've, I've believe that's like a flower was. Um, can you talk about, you know, like how you decided to, or like what has been your process in uh, crystallizing this kind of like form of painting? Mm -hmm. 
I think, like I said as well, everything that I do has a historical reference and a historical, almost folkloric tale that has been told before. And in my work, the forms have existed in the caves before. So being of Khoisan and Sain descent, I think a lot of the communication that existed there were about how to move from one point to the next in history, obviously because there were no books at that time. So when you move from one point to the next, they used form and figure to be able to translate. And I think in many other cultures as well, they have the same kind of way of communicating. However, in my specific way of using that as a reference, I introduced metaphors and poetry and storytelling to be able to get it out there. And with this specific one, I'd say the shapes have existed because you'd see the flowers, you'd see the headgear, you'd see the eye, you'd see, I mean, the, the composition is quite portraiture, right? However, I tried to minimize as much as possible to kind of identify the posture of the figure. And if, if there's a certain attitude that I want the figure to have, I imagine the posture of their attitude, you know what I mean? So if, if it's elongated, I imagine that movement, you know, if it's sad, I imagine the dull and like really spinal cord coming down onto their backs. So everything that I do is literally about figuring out what the posture of the figure is embodying at that time to be able to express it as subtly and minimal as possible. That is very beautiful. Um, oh, that's also another work by Sonia. But uh, what I also want to ask is, like, especially the poetic undertone that you're uh, mentioning, I feel like the thoughts of your uh, figures, or, uh, the you know, uh, portrayed uh, yeah, female protagonists in your paintings, their thoughts have almost like a similar kind of like weight in the painting as well as the objects that they carry or as you said, like the dresses that they wear. Do you think totes are as tangible as any other matter around us, like the built environment, objects and... And um, yeah, I I think it's a yes and no. <laughs> I, I'd say there's a there's a photographer called James Barner. Um, I think is one of my favorite photographers who depicts uh, Africa in the 1970s, earlier 60s, where it's about scenes and depicting the scenes of Africa at that time. So it could be joy, it could be sadness, it could be a marriage or a relationship. And what he does with those scenes, he puts them in a frame that is almost understood as one moment in time. And I really liked how that translated to me. And mine just makes it a little bit more imaginative because color is where I place myself in a very hyper-visible world. I still imagine them as human beings, but I think I remove, I remove their face, I remove who they are, I remove their race, I remove their history, I, I remove so many things that we can argue about in this room and then just make them colorful. And I think I paint scenes of that kind of feeling. 
That's very interesting, actually. It's almost like a freeze, in mm -hmm. a way. Um, but I'm also interested in is the, um, the techniques that you use. For instance, you were talking about your methodology of like extraction, you know, like your, for you, the color has to ha have that kind of like clarity of like the number of colors you choose, but also this kind of like um, other methodologies or techniques that you use in making your work, such as smearing or the paintings that you show at the 18 gallery are all made with sand. Mm -hmm. Can you perhaps talk about also a bit of your creative process in that kind of like um, artistic technique? Sure. Um, it's always difficult to describe it, um, but the smearing technique is, uh, so in a hut, when you smear in a, in a hut, when you make a floor like cement, or lime wash, I think they call it lime wash. You have to kind of use cow dung and clay to be able to get a consistency on the floor. I use that kind of technique with the brush that I make on the canvas to kind of get it as clean and as textural as possible. Sand is, 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 is very dry and can dry up very quickly when it's mixed with sand. So the cleaner the lines behind the canvas, the easier it is or the bigger the movement, the easier it is to get a clean finish or else you'll get like lumps and everything. So I think everything that I do in the studio is intuitive, but technical in the aspect that there's a certain kind of layer that I need to get out. And then I build up with figure and then figure also needs a little life and a layer of its own. So it almost comes, becomes three dimensional the more you add onto it and the flatter it becomes once everything is finished. So there is a two-dimensional aspect when you look at it on screen, but then when, once you're met with the painting, there's, there's a little bit of pockets of layers that exist on it. It's almost like a kind of like it has like volume mm. in a way, you know, because then it must also diffuse to the other side of the canvas. Mm -hmm. 100%. So it's almost kind of like sculptural. Yes. In that sense. I, yeah, I'd say tactile because it moves and you can like put it up and down. Because sculpture makes it stand, you know. And I think with mine, I, I, I want it to be movable, you know, and mobile in some way. And is there like a specific reason that you chose sand as also this kind of like material that in a way challenges you to kind of like, you know, make it smooth? But yes. Yeah. I think when you traditionally train with oil and acrylic or any kind of watercolor painting, I felt a little bit, um, I wasn't challenged by the material, but I liked painting. So I needed something that was going to challenge the way I used the actual material. I found that even paintbrushes are hard to find that could carry the kind of sand that I need. I had to go to hardware stores because the, the, the sand won't clump on the paintbrush. So things like that, it's great to know that I have to look for the material or the tool that will help me get the result that any other painting could. And uh, that's very interesting. I quite like that as well, this kind of like um, hard, labor mm. behind, <laughs> yeah. you know, like very serene mm -hmm. uh, paintings. Um, the other thing I want to ask is about your inspirations, because I feel like there's kind of like a vast pool of inspirations for your work from Western art history, art movements, as well as African, South African specifically folklore. Can you tell us a little bit about them? 
My inspirations all come from everywhere. I've, I've, I've lived many lives. And I'd like... Before. I've, now. I've had many seasons. Um, you look very young. Trust me. Uh, in this season, I am, I'm living quite universal. I have, a, I think, a universal mindset. I gravitate towards the world, uh, but I take home with me wherever I go. I like how the world um, almost takes, takes surface to who they are. So I like meeting people and doing things that are very sure of themselves and are not intimidated by someone else's difference. So that compatibility in meeting people or being in a different country is where I find solace. It's like, ah, oh, so you, you're sure about yourself and you're sure about where you come from. I am too. How can we find middle ground with that? And I take all those inspirations and then I bring them back into the studio and I try to find a universal language that doesn't take away from the person that I am, but almost amplifies it because I'm trying to reach out to more people that are very sure of who they are, but can take it up a little notch without being intimidated by things of the world. That's quite interesting. The other thing that I feel is like a recurring uh, motif in your work is the female figure. Yes. So can you tell us a bit about that as well? Like why are you interested in the depiction of the female? My figures most of the time are fluid. Uh, but if it has anything to do with a feminine approach, I do not shy away from making it very, very apparent. But the female form is, is very clear. I am a woman. <laughs> I represent as one. And I work from that kind of perspective before I work from any other one. So, and I also represent a lot of women artists from back home during that time. Let's say Sonia was an artist that couldn't necessarily express themselves that way. So I take a lot of responsibility and accountability to just honoring different times. And I think the woman figure just needs a little bit more representation sometimes. No, absolutely. That's why I was also wondering, you know, art history is uh, full of, you know, yeah, great works, but depiction mm -hmm. of men. And I think like the, let's say the position of the woman and the stories of the women are less told mm -hmm. and even in this like a beautiful uh, picture um, I feel like there's that kind of yeah, that's why maybe I, I thought the thoughts of that person really weighed her down as well yeah. as her hair uh, piece or maybe there's carrying something um, could you tell us perhaps specifically about this work and also titles, because you all have very beautiful titles uh, for your works, mm -hmm. especially also this exhibition as yes. well. Sorry, I'm no turning around with this beautiful chair, but yeah. <laughs> it wasn't intended. But um, can you tell us yes, a bit more? Yes, sure. Mm -hmm. um, I title my work in my language because I think I need proof of writing most of the time. This one is titled Goat, but in my language it's, it's a completely different meaning. Um, it is a goat still, but a goat is a very spiritual animal. When you meet your family, when you gift someone, when you 
introduce someone. When, when a child is born, a goat is a very symbolic animal in how you gift around the community. But a goat is also one of the most resilient symbols in the community as well. Spiritually, it's also one of the most, I mean, close to a cow. Those two animals hold a lot of weight in how you communicate with ancestors and how you communicate with yourself. So Ibokwe is also in colloquial and slang as someone that is incredible at what they do and does amazing things. So in this specific painting, this goat is tired and does not necessarily recognize themselves as that. And, but they're walking, obviously, around many landscapes that life can challenge, but they still identify as that because they still have the horns on their head. So, yes, that's, that's where the title comes from. I mean, it's very beautiful because in a way it also connects with the storytelling that you, you know, initially alluded to yes. in the beginning of the talk. Can you tell us a bit more about like what does stories represent for you or mm -hmm. what does storytelling mean for you? Storytelling is language, um, where I come from. My grandmother would say, you don't explain yourself, you, you, you tell a story to be able to get the right description of what you're saying. And metaphors and poetry describe a different time. They describe a story that describe how the world came to be. So in anything that you do, you, you don't just make life dull for yourself and should say, that's too dull, that's simple language. So you would find the meaning through, obviously, the clicks and the language and everything else. But surrounded by that, would, she would say, how you identify the next person is how good of a storyteller that they are. So I like telling stories because of that. Um, yes, I could be saying something completely different, but the story behind it could make the viewer understand much easier through relatability and introspection. So I use it to, to also humor myself. Mm -hmm. And um, and do you kind of like build, because sometimes when you're telling stories, especially to a different context or people with different backgrounds, they can't really, you know, they don't have that immediate relationship to. Mm -hmm. Do you build bridges, you know, like metaphorical bridges or how, how can you, you know, because you were saying that you're now working on the universal. So mm -hmm. how could those stories can be specific um, and as well as kind of like uh, all-encompassing in a way, or not all-encompassing, but like accessible to people that come from mm -hmm. various different lengths of life mm -hmm. and, and, and um, perspectives. I think because we live in a world of access currently, um, a lot of people have introspective relationships with themselves and the world. I think we're living in a time where everything is delicately interconnected and you will find relatability with the thing that you do. It may be difficult at the first point of contact, but once you kind of find or weave different things together, you will find that, I will, I've been blessed to know that there are people that from all over the world can come and say, ah, I get it, you know? And that has been something I've never had a challenge with in having that universal language uh, because I think simplicity for me thrives because those who understand that will also just connect to it immediately. Yeah, that's very beautiful. So my last question is, um, 
What are you working on right now that you would like the future to remember? <laughs> the future is a tough place because <laughs> I don't know where that is. Uh, but in terms of memory, I would just like people to remember that there was proof of life and that there was existence. And I made a contribution that made people introspect and want to find out more about themselves without trying to change other people. Yeah. That's very beautiful. Maybe we could end with the, like the title that you were talking about in your artist statement about yes. um, the African, South African saying about the bird yes, and the yes, nest yes, and yes. the feathers. Um, so it's intaka, yaka, goboya, benye, meaning a bird builds with another bird's feathers. And that's, again, a metaphor and a proverb from... Um, the Kasa proverb, just kind of meaning that you don't build a nest with your own body. You just have to go and find different sticks and feathers to make your own home. Um, but usually it comes from another person's ideas, another person's knowledge, another person's acceptance and consent to be able to, to further yourself. I think that brings us really beautifully yeah. to the beginning as yeah. well and to your show with mm -hmm. Sonia mm -hmm. because I feel that Sonia was quite an inspiration mm -hmm. also for you. Yes. And so it's almost like, you know, in artistic practice mm -hmm. as well, it's like we feed on the feathers of the others. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Delightful. <laughs> Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and I really recommend you to see the show. It is really outstanding and hope you enjoy your afternoon.